Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we talk about faith and pop culture, because there's no such thing as secular. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net. So, a confession. I was late to The Bear, the Hulu series about a world-class chef who returns to his family's beef joint in Chicago. It slipped past me. Even though I edited an excellent Think Christian piece by Julia York on season one, even though my wife watched it while I was traveling and when I came home, highly recommended it to me, well, I have made amends. I've finally seen it, fully caught up on the show, which, as Julia points out in her piece, has so much to say about shame, striving for perfection, and the incredible gift of grace. All good stuff to talk about on the podcast, so I recruited some folks to have that conversation, Joe George and J.R. Forresteros. Let's bring them on, and I promise none of us will use the word foodie. Welcome, J.R. Forresteros. Welcome, Joe George. Let's dig into the bear, which now that I've caught up with it, really strikes me as, as one of the more compelling TV series that I've seen that we've gotten in quite some time. And the first thing I want to know from the two of you, now that season two is complete, is what you found to be the most gripping about this show. I'm going to give you a couple options here. Is it this behind-the-scenes, in-the-kitchen look at the restaurant business? Is it the Chicago setting? Is it simply these characters? They could be in any setting with any backdrop. You're just so compelled by the characters. Or... If it's something else, something totally different, feel free to go in that direction. But those were the three elements that came to mind for me. I'll start with you, Joe. What would you say? Uh, this is going to sound so lame talking to a Chicagoan, but it is the Chicago setting because, you know, I grew up in southwest Michigan. I, I Only a couple hours from Chicago. That was always, don't tell anybody this, but I always preferred that to Detroit. And so... <laughs> I, I live, okay, I'll, I live I'll in, start recording now, Joe. So. No, no. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, not the Blackhawks. Red Wings over the Blackhawks every time, but outside of that. All right. Uh, but I live in, I live in North Carolina now, which means that I, I think the TC retreat was the last time I've been. So it's a hmm, lot yeah. of, you know, tugging the heartstrings to see, to see these locales and to see the river and, and all of that again. So that's the big thing for me. Okay. That, that is helpful being someone who does live there now because it's, uh, I'll get to my feelings on that. They're complicated. So it's helpful to hear that outside perspective. How about you, Jair? I think for me, I love any story where we're getting a behind the scenes look at what it takes to be the best of the best. So I'm even thinking back to something like the film Whiplash, right? Where, okay. <laughs> and almost, almost invariably, you see that to achieve at the highest level requires real sacrifice of personal relationships, maybe even of health, of things like that. And I think that's especially what the second season of this show gets into. Uh, we can get into this later when we're talking about theological themes, but I even just wonder if if greatness always requires suffering and sacrifice. Like that, I think that's a thorny theological position to take. And I'm I'm captivated by watching these characters who are all struggling with their own personal demons, all 
either start, you know, Carmi starts the show wanting to be the best. Many of the staff of the bear have to be brought along and convinced that they have what it takes to be the best. And watching them come to that realization, want it, work for it, and then achieve it or not, I think is just incredibly compelling to me. Yeah, I would love to get into some of that. And Whiplash, the scenario there, the setting is a jazz drummer, a student, right? Pursuing that sort of perfection, which is also being demanded of him. That is a great parallel that I had not come to mind for me. I think for me, it's, it is probably the restaurant setting. It's something that, you know, I've been to some really good restaurants in Chicago and now this show makes me think I have not appreciated that enough <laughs> and all the work, all the passion that goes into having those experiences. I love when they're getting into the nitty gritty details about the tape and marking the tape and where the pans go. I could take even more of that and it would probably slow the show down and it would get to be a little boring, but I would not mind if they explained some of that a little more, uh, what each position is. So I, I have kind of been eating that up. I also have to say though, I think this is some of the best acting that I've seen recently anywhere, big screen or small screen. And it's pretty much across the board, but I want to call out two people in particular, Io Edabiri as Sydney. This is a young chef, comes to the beef, beef shop really in desperation, and she's also the one who plants the seeds of a dream of a better place in Carmi's mind. And then Jeremy Allen White as the tortured Carmi, a chef seeking perfection, as we've already touched on, which partly he's seeking that because he thinks it'll quiet those family demons that he has, which are tied to the, the beef shop being a family business. It's such an interior minimalist performance in a lot of ways, though he gets involved in the shouting and the swearing at each other as well. But mostly it's minimalist. The word that came to mind for me is intestinal. I cannot think of another actor who has been able to, the amount of emotion he can squeeze out of a squint and just seeing that in such tight close-up too, which this series employs a lot of, has been astounding to me. Yeah, those tight close-ups and those oneers that they love, where you're just like, uh, 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 you know, I, I can't remember if it's in season one or season two now since I've ran through the whole thing right next to him. But when Carmi does that long confession in the AA type meeting, and it's it's like the That's entire right. thing between commercial breaks that it doesn't cut, and it's all holding on his face, and that's amazing yep. that. I mean, even away from just the, the technical stuff that impresses us, just that he has such a face that can hold our attention and to follow all of those emotions through, through, through that bit, it's, it's outstanding. Yeah, he can do it both ways. He can, he can do those long takes that you're talking about and also juggle the action and the chaos and staying in character in those moments. It's such a burrowed performance into a singular character. Um, all right, the Chicago stuff, my, my caveat here is... Okay. Yes, I like it. I, I mean, I, I'm glad it's there. I enjoy all of those shots of the cityscape and trying to figure out, oh, that's that building, that's this. But I do have to say there are times it feels like it's bordering on pandering. I mean, <laughs> all the stuff with the Cubs and Bill Murray, it seems like a show that is, there are times where it's reminding us it's in Chicago every five minutes with very <laughs> literal signifiers. And I don't know that anyone talks about Chicago stuff as much as these people <laughs> in this show, <laughs> but I really do like, I like other 
ways they do it where you'll hear, say, Liz Fair playing in the background, right? Yeah. Okay, really nice touch. I don't need a character coming in, and they don't in this instance. It's why I liked it, but I don't need characters saying, like, remember when we saw Liz Fair at what you know, at Metro <laughs> or whatever? It's like, we get it, we get it. So maybe if they could pump the brakes on that a little bit, I'd be better with it. But that's just a, a, a close-up perspective. And this is a chance. I'm going to give a shout out to my favorite Italian beef place. And this is Chicago land. I don't think there's a location in the city proper. Pops Italian beef. That's hands down for me the best. If you're ever in the Chicago area, I think they have three or four locations. Hit a Pops. Uh, you'll be you'll be glad you did. I, I want to go on record as saying I think that the Italian beef is the platonic ideal of sandwiches. It is uh, sandwich technology evolved to a place where we could have the Italian beef. I like mine mm. fully dipped. Well, that's uh, what I was going to ask. Okay, yeah. So, I'm about medium. About medium, not fully dipped. Joe, we'll move on after we get done with this. Where where do you go? <laughs> Dry, fully oh, dipped, fully. the medium. Fully, okay. Fully drip, dipped. Soak that thing. Yeah. You, you both are bolder than me. All right, so... <laughs> JR, you know this uh, series well because you've been thinking about it well over at Sojourners already. You wrote about the bear there, and you compared uh, Carmi and his team's difficult journey, which has basically been over two seasons from this struggling beef place to become an aspiring high-end restaurant. You compared that to the fate and the possibility of the dying North American church, if we can use a word as strong as that. Care to talk about that a little bit? I think that would be a fascinating place to start. Yeah, I mean, I will fully admit, since I'm a pastor, that, you know, it's hard for me not to see most things through the lens of my own experience. But, you know, many, many, many churches struggled during COVID, um, including my own. And in all, in every every social media space for pastors, every magazine that was for church leaders of any, like everyone was talking about how does the church pivot or how does the church come back or how does the church survive? Like, I think everyone recognized this is a, a crisis time for churches. Uh, and it, it compounded the fact that, you know, for years, attendance at religious institutions, not just churches, but mosques, synagogues, like everything across the board has been declining in North America. I think last year or a couple of years ago was when it dipped below 50% of the population for the first time in the history of the United States. So, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of hand wringing going on and through the bear, there is this constant conversation, a lot of it between Sydney and her dad about whether even trying to start a new thing, a new restaurant is, is even wise at all, given mm -hmm. the state of the culinary world, given, and, and I think it's in the last second to last or, or, or third to last episode of season two, she walks past one of the restaurants that she was visiting with earlier in the season and sees that it's closed, you know, yeah. and that they basically just couldn't, couldn't sustain coming back from COVID. Right. And so you're seeing, you know, it's not just these little like hamburger stands that have been around since the fifties or the sixties. A lot of them is even some of these high end places that have a Michelin star or two that are very well regarded and yet still they can't stay open. And in the midst of all of this, you have this team of people dysfunctional as they are, who believe that they can do this, you know, uh, and I think it I think it matters too the the conversation that Carmi has with Uncle Jimmy in the second to last episode where Jimmy's like, look, you know that for this even to succeed means you're barely breaking even. 
Like this is not a, this is not a thing where you work hard for a year and then you're on easy street. Like this requires all of you, everything like forever, basically. And the chances of you succeeding are low. And yet I want you to, you know, he's like, I don't want to bulldoze this thing and take it away from you. He's like, I will, but I don't want to. And I just thought a lot about how similar that is to churches where we we are in a culture that is, is changing and has changed massively. And a lot of what we're trying to do is still do church for a culture that maybe no longer exists, you know, or, or is, is on its way out, right. Is, is shrinking more and more and more. And in the same way that I saw uh, the, the scene that I keyed in on for that article was when Marcus goes and works with chef Luca in Denmark, you know, and he's asking like, how, how did you become chef Luca? Right. And Luca goes on this long speech about someone that I'm assuming he was talking about Carmi as this other chef that he was never going to be as good as. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I didn't put it together during the episode, but yeah, that makes sense. But he says, you know, I realized that I was basically trying to be the best and then I met the best and realized I was never going to be the best. So at, and then he said, at some point I realized that basically practicing your skills only ever gets you so far but that at some point you have to look elsewhere and you have to look outside and you have to you have to be inspired and be open. And I think we see that in the bear where we had that flashback episode of the seven fishes, you know, and it and one it was an amazing episode and we could probably go on and on forever about it. But like then in the last episode you you find out they have a dish at the restaurant called seven fishes that you know was this inspired by his fan, you know, and there's there's just so many threads that come together. And I was just thinking about the churches that are trying to do the same thing. Like they're, they're no longer just trying to do the sermon and show better than the church down the street, but the ones that are really trying to be open and trying mm. to look outside the four walls of the building and see what the spirit is doing in the world around us and try to follow that, you know, because I, I don't know. I just genuinely think that's the only hope we have for meaningful engagement with helping people know Jesus in the next 10, 20, 30 years. It's scary to do that though, right? To step out of the unfamiliar. But yeah, the parallel works there too, as you're describing. It's scary for them to take on this restaurant project. I I was fascinated by that Luca character played by Will Poulter and that scene too, because he does open up and that's something that resonates, I think, with a lot of us, expresses, you know, as as you said, a willingness to observe and be open to the wider world. But he also is a demanding perfectionist in that kitchen, right? What does he say uh, when Marcus messes up? He'll say, oh yeah, this, it was always striking to me. He would say, no, like you did it wrong. And then if he did it, no, if he did it wrong another time, he would say, no, worse. And I thought, oh man, are we... <laughs> Like this is getting incredibly intense. And so there's another example of that balance between excellence and perfection and how we should think about that as Christians. I don't know, Joe, if that's something that, you know, you wanted to pick up or if there was another sort of thing about the bear that you thought was interesting from a Christian perspective. Well, yes and no. The biggest hurdle that I have with this show is exactly that sort of emphasis on perfection that JR is talking about. I mean, I don't... I don't value perfection <laughs> in my engagement with art. I value uh, feeling and emotion and messiness, and uh, perfection is not that important to me, which I know as somebody who has edited my articles for like five years, you're probably going, to, <laughs> yeah, no, I, that, that tracks, Joe. <laughs> 
But but so so you know when I'm first watching the show, I'm just like, why it? Why are you all being such jerks? It's just mm. food, you know. Just <laughs> settle down, you know. And and so. Yeah. Part of me that bounces off of me, and and I see everything that you're talking about, but really, especially with the second season, the, the thing that I'm coming away with is sort of its corollary, which is its emphasis on grace. You know, I went into season two thinking, Richie's got to go. You know, <laughs> like, I get why Carmi's keeping him aboard for emotional reasons and all of this, but if you're really going to take this restaurant someplace, you got to get rid of Richie. And- I did not see coming his redemption arc this this season where it went from, you know, you can kind of see that people like him. He has an energy that brings people in, but also he is just so repulsive in that first season. It's <laughs> so difficult for no reason for them to him, for him to kind of find his purpose. You know, that's the thing that he keeps coming back to. And we get kind of the corollary to the, the Chef Luca episode is the episode Forks where Richie gets sent to another high-end restaurant where he has to, for about a week, just clean forks. That's his whole job. And he starts out the episode just bad attitude like you would expect. And finally, this other guy breaks down and sort of explains the appeal of going to this restaurant. And that appeal is to serve, you know? And that that resonates with Richie, that he's like, okay, I can... I want to serve too. And by the time, you know, I guess we're in spoiler territory, but by the time you get to the last couple episodes, Richie has found his place and he's actually the one that's making the restaurant run. Yeah. Well, and I, th- I think in that, in that Forks episode, it's when he finally sees the restaurant running and he sees all of these different ways that every night they're committed to blowing someone's mind. So, you know, you have where he has to go get the deep dish because he heard someone say, you know, that they can't leave Chicago without trying this deep dish. And then the other couple that they researched on their Instagram and saw that they've been saving for months. And so they don't give them a bill. And like Richie gets to see, oh, like that's why everything has to be so flawless, not because our our head chef is a type A perfectionist, but so these people can have a once in a lifetime experience. And, and then when, yeah, you're right. When he's able to bring that back and do that at the bear, it it was jaw dropping. You're right, Joe, like that it's, that it's Richie matters so much. Well, it just matters is such a good word there, JR, because it is, like I said, it's all about him finding his purpose. And, and it turns out that he sees his purpose within this larger thing and it matters. It And it's not that Richie is a different dude at the end of season two than he was at the start of season one. He's still all energy. It's just he's found a place to put it, that emphasis on grace that demands that even the guy that does not seem to belong, does not seem to matter, absolutely matters. And we get that sort of beautiful picture at the end. I think matters is such a good word for that. I think it extends beyond Richie, too. So if we are thinking about this idea of perfection, especially as Carmi maybe demands it in a way that he's starting to loosen a little bit because there's a risk with bringing Richie in. There was a risk in asking for that favor and giving and having him go into that other restaurant for a week, right? He could have taken that place down, the, the Richie we know. <laughs> so Carmi is taking a risk of extending that grace, but it's not just Richie, as I was saying, It's other family members who we would say have no place being anywhere near a high-end restaurant. 
But when we get to opening night, they're there. They're playing crucial roles. And I think it's partly because they've come to smaller realizations similar to Richie's, but it's not because they've attained perfection. And so I do wonder, this isn't really verbalized at all, but I do wonder if it's, again, Carmi loosening that grip. And how about the wonderful touch of being forced to loosen that grip in the season two yes. finale by being trapped in the walk-in <laughs> fridge, right? He had no choice. So it's almost like his worst instincts might have still taken over. He hasn't completely changed, but he was freed by being restricted. He was freed by being held back from that demand for perfection and allowed others then to step up and maybe not do it perfectly. A lot of things went wrong that night, but at least live into that service. I think that notion of service is so crucial here too to this show. That's such a good point, bringing it back around to the family episode too, especially the way that that, and I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for me, part of the pleasure of watching that episode is, you know, oh, look at all these great guest stars, but also then you, you watch that episode and you're like, okay, I get how Carmi can work in this environment because, oh my goodness, that, that is a stressful home. <laughs> and so grateful Indeed. for my low key. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know yes. that my wife who's a Southerner is like, I didn't know that Midwesterners are like that. I'm like, we're not really. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. But that episode, which is full of all sorts of antagonism and self-destruction and all of this stuff, ends with a pseudo prayer where an in-law played by John Mulaney, which is an interesting bit of casting with all of his baggage that kind of comes literally to the table here, where he kind of gives this pseudo prayer. He's asked to say grace and he's like, I'm not really a religious person, but I'll, I'll give this, I can't remember the word he uses, but something to the effect of blessing. And he says this thing that struck, struck me as, I don't know what to do with it. And I wonder what you guys do with it, where he's like, you know, you're not always nice, but you've been so kind to me, you know? And you're like, I just see mm. no kindness the rest of this episode. And yet that felt true with some of these characters as we see them in other episodes. Mm -hmm. Well, he's, you know, this is a gathering of the unwanted in a lot of ways, yes. that Christmas dinner. They're not all family. I found that fascinating because a lot of times people will say, oh, I got to go home for the holidays. It's going to be miserable. And you ask, well, why, why go then? And you feel, people will say, well, I feel obligated. It's my family. I, I couldn't, I didn't have a chance to choose them. There's a lot of people around that table, as I understand it, who aren't family and they have nowhere else to go. So I think that's the the key distinction that's being talked about there. But JR, I'm curious, curious to hear what you think of this. I thought of your post while watching that episode because of the way that gathering really can model the challenge for a church to bring in the unwanted, to bring in the difficult, and not going to be able to solve all their problems, but to still make space for them. I don't know if that resonated with you at all as you were watching that episode. Oh, so much. I mean, honestly, I think one of the most painful realizations for me in my own journey as a pastor is recognized, like I thought, again, I, no one ever taught me this. I just kind of thought my job was to fix everyone's problems, right? And the mm -hmm. longer you pastor, the longer you realize, yeah, people have to want to change, right? They don't, there's no, they don't issue you like a secret Bible verse or a red phone to heaven when you take a pastorate that like fixes everything for people. And so way more often than not, I think church community looks like that episode, Seven Fishes, <laughs> <laughs> than it does, that it does something else. Uh, it's, 
it's people hopefully less cars plowing through the front doors. But. You know, hopefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's messy. It's painful. It's people who often we we receive one another at our worst and then have to find f- ways to forgive each other and continue to live with each other. Um, people who don't have healthy conflict resolution or coping skills or all that kind of stuff. And yet we're all called to be part of the body of Christ. And, you know, Joe, I think when you were talking about the redemption of Richie and him finding his place like that, that's where I think that body of Christ metaphor really matters, right? Like, when when Richie was pointed against the restaurant, he was an absolute agent of destruction. Like he sabotaged every step of the way. When Carmen got him reoriented and pointed in the direction that he needed to be, he made he made it, right? Like he, if Richie had not been there at friends and family night, it would have been a disaster uh, on a number of levels. And and instead it ended up being a success. Asterisk except for Carmen's meltdown, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think I think that's such a beautiful call. And, and, and the season ended with so many questions, right? One of the big ones being the mother. You know, what do we see about uh, Mrs. Berzano and what's going to happen with her? Uh, I thought that scene between her and her son-in-law was beautiful, um, mm. where she, she, she got as close as she could bring herself to get. And again, as a pastor, I know some folks that that's where they hang out. They're just outside the body Mm. of the church and they can't, they just can't quite get in there, but they're close and then they leave, you know? And it's like, sometimes you just have to accept that that's where those folks are for now. And that's grace in its own way, you know? And maybe say something like, doesn't the son-in-law say something to the effect of, you know, there'll, there'll be a chair for you or there'll be a space. And I imagine as a pastor, that's the job, but also, you know, what you're signing up for in those cases, that doesn't mean they're going to walk in and everything will be smooth. I, I wanted to, yeah, talk about one other thing from that Forks episode, the one where Richie is at the high-end restaurant and his arc, you know, I think is, have we mentioned Ivan Moss Bacharach plays Richie, by the way, just another one of the really excellent performances. And I think his arc there, it's its crucial, but it was a side moment that especially stood out to me. I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, this is when the whole staff is gathered before opening and a supervisor who's actually played by one of the show's writers, uh, Rene Goube, he launches into this speech about apparently there was a smudge somewhere that no one has owned up to. Still, no one is owning up to the smudge. I want to clarify that it's not so much the smudge, but rather the fact that no one is taking responsibility for the smudge. We're not children. It's okay to make mistakes. We can smudge things, but we need to own up to them with immediacy, integrity, and honesty. So here's my question for the two of you, and it's related to this tension. We've already been talking about the striving for perfection and the the needing of grace. So in this moment, we can smudge things, but we need to own up to them. Does that read to you guys as a demonstration of what, you know, obedience or maybe I think we've used the word excellence looks like um, in a place of grace where you're still pursuing excellence, not perfection, but excellence, but there's grace there and responsibility as well? Or did you read this moment as an example of the the merciless demand for perfection that we've seen Carmi suffer from? How, how did that play for the two of you? Uh, I, I think for me, it played more like the former and especially in the way that it, it unfolded, you know, that 
at first it's, and I'm blanking on the character and the actor's names, but um, whoever's running the meeting keeps bringing up the smudge, the smudge, you know, and I'm going back to, again, my whole, this hoity-toity restaurant, who cares about a smudge, that adds character. You know, I'm getting defensive as a viewer okay. uh, to the characters. And then when the chef comes in and says that line that you just mentioned, it feels totally different. And it is exactly that, that it, it's, you know, you, you can make a mistake. We recognize that we're humans, but part of being mm -hmm. human is you need to acknowledge that you made a mistake. And it's only kind of through those acknowledgements, not only on yourself, but myself that allows that grace to go through. And it just the way that line is delivered, the sort of desperation on his face, the way that his voice kind of wavers, it felt so much more human. Like, look, I get it, but you got to okay. own up to it. Yeah, yeah. And I think too, I don't, uh, at least for me, and I'm assuming y'all were like this as well. Uh, I mean, the only kitchen I've ever worked in was an Applebee's, which we, as far as I know, while I worked there, never had a Michelin star. It wasn't until I, like Richie, saw the night, like the night the restaurant worked that it clicked for me too. You know, that I was like, okay, oh, okay. yeah, all right, I get this. And I will say uh, for, our, for my anniversary, uh, probably our seventh or eighth wedding anniversary, we, we went to a five-star restaurant and uh, it was only like one of the only times we've ever done like a super nice meal out like that. And we had the experience of they had looked us up online and every single from the, the host who sat us to really random servers who just were walking past, like not filling our water, just, just walk past us. We're like, Hey, by the way, you guys, happy anniversary. Thanks so much for dining with us, you know? And so like as <laughs> wow. someone who, had, who has experienced that level of treatment, I was like, okay, I do get why the smudge would be such a big deal. And I don't know that I can answer your question, Josh, because I think what I don't know is why no one why no one came forward. The two possibilities oh, in my mind were either like yeah. maybe just no one knows who did the smudge. Like maybe it was me and it was on my way to do something else and I didn't even realize it. And if I knew it was me, I would say something, but I don't know. Or maybe someone has come forward before about a smudge and it's not actually the grace that is proffered. It's actually mm -hmm. you're dressed down and fired, right? I don't know. And so- No, that's it, a really good question. And from what we see elsewhere, and there's that great scene with Olivia Coleman as the chef owner of the restaurant and how she has that conversation with Richie, you would suspect that grace would have been offered. And maybe it's something like you're talking about because this restaurant is different from the one, the flashbacks we see where Carmi, where it's all berating, all demanding, all punishing for any mistake. We don't really see, there's this very difficult conversation we're talking about, which is intense, but we don't really see that sort of lack of dignity thrown about that we do in those flashbacks. Or honestly, we see at the beef shop in right. season one, right? Even even that Carmi is expressing. So, so yeah, I think this is, it's almost like an idealized perhaps version, this restaurant that Richie goes to. You wonder if any restaurant right like that at that level really could operate as this one does. Right. It's the West Wing of restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, I suppose. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that we hit on, you know, when I've been talking to people about the bear, it's been the Christmas dinner episode. It's been the Richie episode forks that um, people want to talk about. So we've hit on those two things as well as a bunch of other good stuff. Do either of you have anything 
that uh, we haven't touched on you want to make sure to cover? The last thing I want to mention, and it kind of goes along with what you're just saying, Josh, is I just love the little bit that Sydney and Carmi establish where they do the the the, the silent sorry um, to one oh, another. The sign kind of, for sorry. Yeah. 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 And, and because it just stands out because the one time we actually see it in action is Carmi is coming close to exactly what you're talking about, where he's really coming down on Sid and he, he loses kind of his words and he just does the sign and she does it back to him. And it's just such a wonderful moment where you acknowledge both all the pressures that are on both of these characters and the, the grace that they're able to give one another. It's, it's so powerful. Yeah, that it's like a pressure release, a physical gesture of pressure release. Yeah, I was going to say, I think there's space. something about it. It matters that it's a physical sign because yeah. you do get in your head in those spaces, right? And it's a way to like reconnect you with your body, reconnect you with the present moment, reconnect you with the fact, I, Josh, I love that you use the word dignity there, right? That the way he's treating this other human being across from him is not okay, right? And mm. it's and it's it's like recentering all of that and grounding it in the body in a way that I think really matters, not just for a restaurant, but particularly maybe in a place where you're feeding the body, you know? <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. I like that. I I am just staggered by how great every single character is and how every single arc is different. Uh, I mean, my early favorite in season one was Tina, you know, and when, you know, when she's so combative and and so angry at Sydney. And then I think it's a moment where she's like, all right, chef, come come tell me this is bad, too, or whatever. And Sydney Mm -hmm. just tastes it and goes, great, chef, thanks and walks away. And Tina's like, wait, what? And she's like, I said, right. great, chef, thanks. You know, and, and like, and Tina recognizes that Sydney is treating her like a professional. And then, of course, this season, and I think it's the first episode when she asked Tina to be the Sue. And I mean, it's, you see the, the way she grows because someone believes in her, mm, you know, yeah. it's just such a beautiful thing. Marcus, you know, came along quicker than she did. Is it, is Ibram, is the other uh, cook who's going to be operating the window. Is that his name? That um, sounds right. Yeah. Who again was a, f- like he, he, he was too intimidated to do culinary school and yet they still found a way to incorporate, you know, it just, it's, you have all of these different responses to this call to, to excellence or call to perfection and the beef, the bear makes room for all of them and welcomes all of them in and gives them all space while at the same time we think not doesn't compromise their standards. Right. I'm assuming season three is going to be the quest for the star. Uh, We'll see, you know? Yeah. Well, and that could get interesting because again, in Carmi's world, you come in, you immediately fire everyone, right? And you bring in entirely new qualified, the best of the best. And there are some believable logistic reasons he didn't do that, right? It was a family business. He initially was going to keep running it as just a beef joint. But that also suggests there's maybe a seed within him somewhere that this relentless drive for perfection at the cost of others' dignity is something that's been imposed mostly on him. And the part of him that leans that way has been inflamed by it rather than the person he really is truly yeah. deeply. So at the end, it's almost, you know, also giving him the space to be a more excellent human, even if it may not be as perfect of a chef, 
as he otherwise could be. So, so yeah, we will see how that plays out in season three. I'm definitely uh, eager for when that comes around. Thank you both for watching both seasons. And I know Joe, you were, you were like me doing a a bit of cramming to fit that in. (laughs) So I'm glad you did that, but I really appreciate it. JR, aside from that Sojourners post, what else, what else have you been up to? You want to pitch or mention? Uh, I am writing about Talk to Me, the new horror movie for Tor.com. Oh, yeah. Talking about how that is a uniquely Gen Z possession film and what that means. And then yeah, other that makes that, sense. I like that. Yeah, my my fascinating podcast is on hiatus, so just kind of trying to enjoy the rest of the summer before I head back into the fall and, you know, everything kicks Good. back into gear, so. Yeah, give yourself a break. How about you, Joe? Uh, you, you getting a, a break before school, before teaching oh. kicks in? Oh, no, of course. <laughs> Sorry, should I should I not have mentioned that? <laughs> oh, no, no, it's it's in mind, but no, uh, no breaks, <laughs> but that's okay. I've got lots of writing out there. Basically, every day I've got something on at the website Den of Geek. Most recently, I, I'm pretty proud of, <laughs> and people will probably disagree with it, but an article defending Chris Nolan's muddy dialogue and <laughs> i saw that yes <laughs> yeah uh the, the comment section does not agree with me but i still stand <laughs> the dialogue does not matter those <laughs> rules are boring you don't need that stuff and of course i've got it over here i gotta plug my book the superpowers and the glory yes. um if you like super if you're one of the few people who's not sick of superhero movies uh maybe <laughs> check it out because i talk about them all there <laughs> Do check it out. I was just saying before we started recording, I I gave it an endorsement and I'm getting my copy for doing that soon. I can't wait to add it to, along with JR's book, the the shelf I have here in my closet, but it's still, it's a shelf of (laughs) Think Christian Writers books. So they're all together An ever-growing shelf. That's so great. It is. And I, I really, I really do like looking up at that. So, so yeah, check out Joe's book and JR's writing as well. Thanks again to both of you. Thank you, Josh. Always a pleasure. We will, of course, link to those posts that we mentioned on the bear, Julia over at thinkchristian.net on season one, and then J.R. Forresteros' recent reflection at Sojourners. Now, if you have thoughts on the bear, we would love to hear them. You can connect with us on social media over Twitter slash X, I guess. Yes, we are still there. We're also on Facebook at Think Christian. If you've understandably abandoned the social media landscape, well, you can always email us at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. Just shoot us a note, tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. We will be back in about a week or so to catch up with another piece of summer pop culture. We didn't get to Disney's live action, The Little Mermaid, when it was in theaters earlier. Now that it's going to be on VOD, Video On Demand, I think it's there right now and will probably be coming to Disney Plus by the end of August, we thought it would be another chance to weigh in on the movie. So, Catherine Freeman and Sarah Welch Larson will be joining me for that. Until then, if you want to keep up with the articles we publish a couple of times each week at thinkchristian.net, you can sign up to get our emails. Just do that at thinkchristian.net slash subscribe. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Basselin. I'm Josh Larson. 
Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.